I've got an exciting announcement for all you wonderful Send Me to Sleep listeners. Our back catalogue is now publicly available and completely free. You can listen to all our episodes, even the ones that used to be premium exclusives. This includes voice-only episodes and wonderful books like The Wizard of Oz, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Around the World in 80 Days, and so many more. So please do go back and find a brand new story to help you get a great sleep tonight. Good evening. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the world's sleepiest podcast. I'm your host, Andrew. I'm here to help calm your mind and send you into a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 16 and 17 of The Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 16 Madame Giry's Astounding Revelations as to her personal relations with the opera ghost. Before following the commissary into the manager's office, I must describe certain extraordinary occurrences that took place in that office, which Remy and Mercia had vainly tried to enter, and into which Monsieur Richard and Moncharmin had locked themselves with an object which the reader does not yet know, but which it is my duty as an historian, to reveal without further postponement. I have had occasion to say that the manager's mood had undergone a disagreeable change for some time past, and to convey the fact that this change was due not only to the fall of the chandelier on the famous night of the gala performance, The reader must know that the ghost had calmly been paid his first twenty thousand francs. Oh, there had been wailing and gnashing of the teeth indeed, and yet the thing had happened as simply as can be. One morning, the managers found on their table an envelope addressed to Monsieur O.G., private and accompanied by a note from O.G. himself. The time has come to carry out the clause in the memorandum book. Please put twenty notes of a thousand francs each into this envelope, seal it with your own seal, and hand it to Madame Giry, who will do what is necessary. The managers did not hesitate. Without wasting time in asking how these confounded communications came to be delivered in an office which they were careful to keep locked, 
they seized this opportunity of laying hands on the mysterious blackmailer, and, after telling the whole story, under the promise of secrecy to Gabrielle and Mercia, they put the twenty thousand francs into the envelope, and without asking for explanations, handed it to Madame Giry, who had been reinstated in her functions. The box-keeper displayed no astonishment. I need hardly say that she was well watched. She went straight to the ghost's box and placed the precious envelope on the little shelf attached to the ledge. The two managers, as well as Gabrielle and Mercia, were hidden in such a way that they did not lose sight of the envelope for a second during the performance and even afterward, for, as the envelope had not moved, those who watched it did not move either, and Madame Giry went away while the managers, Gabrielle and Mercia, were still there. At last, they became tired of waiting and opened the envelope. After ascertaining that the seal had not been broken. At first sight, Richard and Moncharmin thought that the notes were still there, but soon they perceived that they were not the same. The twenty real notes were gone, and had been replaced by twenty notes of the Bank of St. Fars. The manager's rage and fright were unmistakable. Moncharmin wanted to send for the commissary of police, but Richard objected. He no doubt had a plan, for he said, Don't let us make ourselves ridiculous. All Paris would laugh at us. O.G. has won the first game. We will win the second. He was thinking of the next month's allowance. Nevertheless, they had been so absolutely tricked that they were bound to suffer a certain dejection, and, upon my word, it was not difficult to understand. We must not forget that the managers had an idea at the back of their minds all the time that this strange incident might be an unpleasant practical joke on the part of their predecessors, and that it would not do to divulge it prematurely. On the other hand, Moncharmin was sometimes troubled with a suspicion of Richard himself, who occasionally took fanciful whims into his head, and so they were content to await events, while keeping an eye on Mother Jeery. Richard would not have her spoken to. If she is a confederate, he said, the notes are gone long ago, but in my opinion, she is merely an idiot. She's not the only idiot in this business, said Moncharmin pensively. Well, who could have thought it, moaned Richard, but don't be afraid. Next time, I shall have taken my precautions.
the next time fell on the same day that beheld the disappearance of Christine Day. In the morning, a note from the ghost reminded them that the money was due. It read, Do just as you did last time. It went very well. Put the twenty thousand in the envelope and hand it to our excellent Madame Giry. And the note was accompanied by the usual envelope. They had only to insert the notes. This was done about half an hour before the curtain rose on the first act of Faust. Richard showed the envelope to Moncharmin. Then he counted the twenty thousand franc notes in front of him and put the notes in the envelope, but without closing it. And now, he said, let's have Mother Jeery in. The old woman was sent for. She entered with a sweeping courtesy. She still wore her black taffeta dress, the colour of which was rapidly turning to rust and lilac, to say nothing of the dingy bonnet. She seemed in a good temper. She at once said, Good evening, gentlemen. It's for the envelope, I suppose. Yes, Madame Jeery, said Richard, most amiably, for the envelope, and something else besides. At your service, Monsieur Richard, at your service, and what is the something else, please? First of all, Madame Jeery, I have a little question to put to you. By all means, Monsieur Richard. Madame Giry is here to answer you. Are you still on good terms with the ghost? Couldn't be better, sir. Couldn't be better. Ah, we are delighted. Look here, Madame Giry, said Richard, in the tone of making an important confidence. We may just as well tell you amongst ourselves. You're no fool. Why, sir, exclaimed the box-keeper, stopping the pleasant nodding of the black feathers in her dingy bonnet. I assure you, no one has ever doubted that. We are quite agreed, and we shall soon understand one another. The story of the ghost is all humbug, isn't it? Well. Still between ourselves, it has lasted long enough. Madame Giry looked at the managers as though they were talking Chinese. She walked up to Richard's table and asked, rather anxiously, What do you mean? I don't understand. Oh, you understand quite well. In any case, you've got to understand. And, first of all, tell us his name. Whose name? The name of the man whose accomplice you are, Madame Giry. I am the ghost's accomplice. I, his accomplice in what, pray? 
you do all he wants? Oh, he's not very troublesome, you know. And does he still tip you? I mustn't complain. How much does he give you for bringing him that envelope? Ten francs. You poor thing. That's not much, is it? Why? I'll tell you that presently, Madame Jeery. Just now, we should like to know for what extraordinary reason you have given your body and soul to this ghost. Madame Jeery's friendship and devotion are not to be bought for five francs or ten francs. That's true enough, and I can tell you the reason, sir. There's no disgrace about it. On the contrary. We're quite sure of that, Madame Jeery. Well, it's like this. Only the ghost doesn't like me to talk about his business. Indeed, sneered Richard. But this is a matter that concerns myself alone. Well, it was in box five one evening. I found a letter addressed to myself, a sort of note written in red ink. I needn't read the letter to you, sir. I know it by heart, and I shall never forget it if I live to be a hundred. And Madame Jeery, drawing herself up, recited the letter with touching eloquence. Madame, 1825, Mademoiselle Menetrier, leader of the ballet, became Marquis de Cousy. 1832, Mademoiselle Marie Taglioni, a dancer, became Comtesse Gilbert Desvoisin. 1846, La Sotte, a dancer, married a brother of the King of Spain. 1847, Lola Montes, a dancer, became the morganatic wife of King Louis of Bavaria and was created Countess of Landsfeld. 1848, Mademoiselle Maria, a dancer, became Baronet de Hernville. 1870, Teresa Hessia, a dancer, married Dom Fernando, brother to the King of Portugal. Richard and Moncharmin listened to the old woman, who, as she proceeded with the enumeration of these glorious nuptials, swelled out, took courage, and, at last, in a voice bursting with pride, flung out the last sentence of the prophetic letter. 1885. Meg Jiri, Empress. Exhausted by this supreme effort, the boxkeeper fell into a chair, saying, Gentlemen, the letter was signed, Opera Ghost. I had heard much of the ghost, but only half believed in him. From the day when he declared that my little Meg, the flesh of my flesh, 
the fruit of my womb would be empress. I believed in him altogether. And really it was not necessary to make a long study of Madame Giry's excited features to understand what could be got out of that fine intellect with the two words ghost and empress. But who pulled the strings of that extraordinary puppet? That was the question. You have never seen him. He speaks to you, and you believe all he says, asked Moncharmin. Yes. To begin with, I owe it to him that my little Meg was promoted to be the leader of the row. I said to the ghost, if she is to be empress in 1885, there is no time to lose. She must become a leader at once. He said, look upon it as done. And he had only a word to say to Monsieur Polini, and the thing was done. So you see that Monsieur Polini saw him. No, not any more than I did. But he heard him. The ghost said a word in his ear, you know, on the evening when he left Box 5, looking so dreadfully pale. Moncharmin heaved a sigh. What a business, he groaned. Ah, said Madame Giry, I always thought there were secrets between the ghost and Monsieur Poligny. Anything that the ghost asked Monsieur Poligny to do, Monsieur Poligny did. Monsieur Poligny could not refuse the ghost. You hear, Richard, Poligny could refuse the ghost nothing. Yes, yes, I hear, said Richard. Monsieur Poligny is a friend of the ghost, and... As Madame Giry is a friend of Monsieur Poligny, there we are. But I don't care a hang about Monsieur Poligny, he added roughly. The only person whose fate really interests me is Madame Giry. Madame Giry, do you know what it is in this envelope? Why, of course not, said she. Well, look. Madame Giry looked into the envelope with a lacklustre eye, which soon recovered its brilliancy. Thousand franc notes, she cried. Yes, Madame Giry, thousand franc notes, and you knew it. I, sir, I, I swear. Don't swear, Madame Giry. And now I will tell you the second reason why I sent for you. Madame Giry, I am going to have you arrested. The two black feathers on the dingy bonnet, which usually affected the attitude of two notes of interrogation, changed into two notes of exclamation. As for the bonnet itself, it swayed in menace on the old lady's tempestuous chignon. Surprise, indignation, 
protest and dismay were furthermore displayed by little Meg's mother in a sort of extravagant movement of offended virtue. Half pound, half slide, that brought her right under the nose of Monsieur Richard, who could not help pushing back his chair. Have me arrested? The mouth that spoke those words seemed to spit the three teeth that were left to it into Richard's face. Monsieur Richard behaved like a hero. He retreated no farther. His threatening forefinger seemed already to be pointing out the keeper of Box Five to the absent magistrates. I'm going to have you arrested, Madame Giry, as a thief. Say that again. And Madame Giry caught Mr. Manager Richard a mighty box on the ear before Mr. Manager Moncharmin had time to intervene. But it was not the withered hand of the angry old bedlam that fell on the managerial ear but the envelope itself, the cause of all the trouble, the magic envelope that opened with the blow, scattering the banknotes, which escaped in a fantastic whirl of giant butterflies. The two managers gave a shout, and the same thought made them both go on their knees, feverishly, picking up and hurriedly examining the precious scraps of paper. Are they still genuine, Moncharmin? Are they still genuine, Richard? Yes, they are still genuine. Above their heads, Madame Giry's three teeth were clashing in a noisy contest, full of hideous interjections. But all that could be clearly distinguished was this lit motif. I, a thief. I, a thief. I. She choked with rage. She shouted, I never heard of such a thing. And suddenly, she darted up to Richard again. In any case, she yelped. You, Monsieur Richard, ought to know better than I where the twenty thousand francs went to. I? asked Richard, astounded. And how should I know? Moncharmin, looking severe and dissatisfied, at once insisted that the good lady should explain herself. What does this mean, Madame Giry? He asked, and why do you say that Monsieur Richard ought to know better than you where the twenty thousand francs went to? As for Richard, who felt himself turning red under Moncharmin's eyes, he took Madame Giry by the wrist and shook it violently. In a voice growling and rolling like thunder, he roared, Why should I know better than you where the twenty thousand francs went to? Why? Answer me. 
because they went into your pocket, gasped the old woman, looking at him as if he were the devil incarnate. Richard would have rushed upon Madame Giry if Moncharmin had not stayed his avenging hand and hastened to ask her more gently, How can you suspect my partner, Monsieur Richard, of putting twenty thousand francs in his pocket? I never said that, declared Madame Giry, seeing that it was myself who put the twenty thousand francs in Monsieur Richard's pocket, and she added under her voice, There, it's out, and may the ghost forgive me. Richard began bellowing anew, but Moncharmin authoritatively ordered him to be silent. Allow me, allow me, let the woman explain herself. Let me question her, and he added, Is it really astonishing that you should take up such a tone? We are on the verge of clearing up the whole mystery, and you're in a rage. You're wrong to behave like that. I'm enjoying myself immensely. Madame Giry, like the martyr that she was, raised her head her face beaming with faith in her own innocence. You tell me there were twenty thousand francs in the envelope which I put into Monsieur Richard's pocket, but I tell you again that I knew nothing about it, nor Monsieur Richard either, for that matter. Aha, said Richard. Suddenly assuming a swaggering air which Moncharmin did not like. I knew nothing either. You put twenty thousand francs in my pocket, and I knew nothing either. I am very glad to hear it, Madame Giry. Yes, the terrible dame agreed. Yes, it's true. We neither of us knew anything. But you, you must have ended by finding out. Richard would certainly have swallowed Madame Giry alive if Moncharmin had not been there. Moncharmin protected her. He resumed his questions. What sort of envelope did you put in Monsieur Richard's pocket? It was not the one which we gave you the one which you took to box five before our eyes, and yet that was the one which contained the twenty thousand francs. I beg your pardon, the envelope which Monsieur le Directeur gave me was the one which I slipped into Monsieur le Directeur's pocket, explained Madame Giry. The one which I took to the ghost's box was another envelope, just like it, which the ghost gave me beforehand and which I hid up my sleeve. So saying, Madame Giry took from her sleeve an envelope, ready prepared 
and similarly addressed to that containing the twenty thousand francs. The managers took it from her. They examined it and saw that it was fastened with seals stamped with their own managerial seal. They opened it. It contained twenty thousand Bank of St. Fast notes, like those which had so much astounded them the month before. How simple, said Richard. How simple, repeated Moncharmin. And he continued with his eyes fixed upon Madame Giry, as though trying to hypnotize her. So it was the ghost who gave you this envelope and told you to substitute it for the one which we gave you. It was the ghost who told you to put the other one into Monsieur Richard's pocket. Yes, it was the ghost. Then would you mind giving us a specimen of your little talents? Here is the envelope. Act as though we knew nothing. As you please, gentlemen. Madame Giry took the envelope with the twenty notes inside it and made for the door. She was on the point of going out when the two managers rushed at her. Oh no, oh no, we're not going to be done a second time. Once bitten, twice shy. I beg your pardon, gentlemen, said the old woman in self-excuse. You told me to act as though you knew nothing. Well, if you knew nothing, I should go away with your envelope. And then how would you slip it into my pocket? argued Richard, whom Moncharmin fixed with his left eye, while keeping his right on Madame Giry. A proceeding likely to strain his sight but Moncharmin was prepared to go to any length to discover the truth. I am to slip it into your pocket when you least expect it, sir. You know that I always take a little turn behind the scenes in the course of the evening, and I often go with my daughter to the ballet foyer, which I'm entitled to do as her mother. I bring her shoes when the ballet is about to begin. In fact, I come and go as I please. The subscribers come and go too. So do you, sir. There are lots of people about. I go behind you and slip the envelope into the tail pocket of your dress coat. There's no witchcraft about that. No witchcraft, growled Richard, rolling his eyes like Jupiter Tonnins. No witchcraft? Why, I've just caught you in a lie, you old witch. Madame Giry bristled, with her teeth sticking out of her mouth. And why, may I ask? Because I spent that evening watching Box Five and the sham envelope which you put there. I did not go to the ballet foyer for a second. No, sir, 
and I did not give you the envelope that evening, but at the next performance, on the evening when the Under-Secretary of State for Fine Arts. At these words, Monsieur Richard suddenly interrupted Madame Giry. Yes, that's true, I remember now. The Under-Secretary went behind the scenes. He asked for me. I went down to the ballet foyer for a moment. I was on the foyer steps. The Under-Secretary and his chief clerk were in the foyer itself. I suddenly turned around. You passed behind me, Madame Giry. You seemed to push against me. Oh, I can see you still. I can see you still. Yes, that's it, sir. That's it. I had just finished my little business. The pocket of yours, sir, is very handy. And Madame Giry once more suited the action to the word. She passed behind Monsieur Richard and, so nimbly that Moncharmin himself was impressed by it, slipped the envelope into the pocket of one of the tails of Monsieur Richard's dress coat. Of course, exclaimed Richard, looking a little pale. It's very clever of O.G. The problem which he had to solve was this. How to do away with any dangerous intermediary between the man who gives the 20,000 francs and the man who receives it. And by far the best thing he could hit upon was to come and take the money from my pocket without my noticing, as I myself did not know that it was there. It's wonderful. Oh, wonderful, no doubt, Moncharmin agreed. Only, you forget, Richard, that I provided ten thousand francs of the twenty, and that nobody put anything in my pocket. Chapter 17 The Safety Pin Again Moncharmin's last phrase so dearly expressed the suspicion in which he now held his partner that it was bound to cause a stormy explanation, at the end of which it was agreed that Richard should yield to all Moncharmin's wishes with the object of helping him to discover the miscreant who was victimizing them. This brings us to the interval after the garden act, with the strange conduct observed by Monsieur Remy and those curious lapses from the dignity that might be expected of the managers. It was arranged between Richard and Moncharmin first that Richard should repeat the exact movements which had been made on the night of the disappearance of the first twenty thousand francs, and, second, that Moncharmin should not for an instant lose sight of Richard's coat-tail pocket, into which Madame Giry was to slip the twenty thousand francs. 
Monsieur Richard went and placed himself at the identical spot where he had stood when he bowed to the Under-Secretary of Fine Arts. Monsieur Moncharmin took up his position a few steps behind him. Madame Giry passed, rubbed up against Monsieur Richard, got rid of her twenty thousand francs in the manager's coat-tail pocket, and disappeared. Or rather, she was conjured away. In accordance with the instructions received from Moncharmin a few minutes earlier, Mercier took the good lady to the acting manager's office and turned the key on her, thus making it impossible for her to communicate with her ghost. Meanwhile, Monsieur Richard was bending and bowing and scraping and walking backwards, just as if he had had the high and mighty minister, the Under-Secretary of Fine Arts, before him. Only... Though these marks of politeness would have created no astonishment if the Under-Secretary of State had really been in front of Monsieur Richard, they caused an easily comprehensible amazement to the spectators of this very natural but quite inexplicable scene when Monsieur Richard had nobody in front of him. Monsieur Richard bowed to nobody, bent his back before nobody, and walked backwards before nobody, and, a few steps behind him, Monsieur Moncharmin did the same thing that he was doing, in addition to pushing away Monsieur Remy and begging Monsieur de la Bourdieu, the ambassador, and the manager of the Credit Central, not to touch Monsieur le Directeur. Moncharmin, who had his own ideas, did not want Richard to come to him presently, when the twenty thousand francs were gone, and say, Perhaps it was the ambassador, or the manager of the Credit Central, or Remy. The more so as, at the time of the first scene, as Richard himself admitted, Richard had met nobody in that part of the theatre after Madame Giry had brushed up against him. Having begun by walking backward in order to bow, Richard continued to do so from prudence until he reached the passage leading to the offices of the management. In this way, he was constantly watched by Moncharmin from behind, and himself kept an eye on anyone approaching from the front. Once more, this novel method of walking behind the scenes, adopted by the managers of our National Academy of Music, attracted attention, but the managers themselves thought of nothing but their twenty thousand francs. On reaching the half-dark passage, Richard said to Moncharmin in a low voice, I am sure that nobody has touched me. 
You had now better keep some distance from me, and watch till I come to the door of the office. It is better not to rouse suspicion, and we can see anything that happens. But Monsharmin replied, No, Richard, no. You walk ahead, and I'll walk immediately behind you. I won't leave you by a step. But in that case, exclaimed Richard, they will never steal our twenty francs. I should hope not indeed, declared Moncharmin. Then what we are doing is absurd. We are doing exactly what we did last time. Last time, I joined you as you were leaving the stage and followed close behind you down the passage. That's true, sighed Richard, shaking his head and passively obeying Moncharmin. Two minutes later, the joint managers locked themselves into their office. Moncharmin himself put the key in his pocket. We remained locked up like this last time, he said, until you left the opera to go home. That's so. No one came and disturbed us, I suppose. No one. Then, said Richard, who was trying to collect his memory, then I must certainly have been robbed on my way home from the opera. No, said Moncharmin, in a drier tone than ever. No, that's impossible, for I dropped you in my cab. The twenty thousand francs disappeared at your place. There's no shadow of a doubt about that. It's incredible, protested Richard. I am sure of my servants, and if one of them had done it, he would have disappeared since. Moncharmin shrugged his shoulders, as though to say that he did not wish to enter into details. And Richard began to think that Moncharmin was treating him in a very unsupportable fashion. Moncharmin, I've had enough of this. Richard, I've had too much of it. Do you dare to suspect me? Yes, of a silly joke. One doesn't joke with twenty thousand francs. That's what I think, declared Moncharmin, unfolding a newspaper and ostentatiously studying its contents. What are you doing? asked Richard. Are you going to read the paper next? Yes, Richard, until I take you home. Like last time. Yes, like last time. Richard snatched the paper from Moncharmin's hands. Moncharmin stood up, more irritated than ever, and found himself faced by an exasperated Richard, who, crossing his arms on his chest, said, Look here, I'm thinking of this. I'm thinking of what I might think, if, like last time, after spending the evening alone with you, 
you brought me home, and if, at the moment of parting, I perceived that twenty thousand francs had disappeared from my coat pocket, like last time. And what might you think? asked Moncharmin, crimson with rage. I might think, as you hadn't left me by a foot's breadth, and as, by your own wish, you were the only one to approach me, like last time, I might think that, if that twenty thousand francs was no longer in my pocket, it stood a very good chance of being in yours. Moncharmin leaped at the suggestion. Oh, he shouted, a safety pin. What do you want a safety pin for? To fasten you up with a safety pin. You want to fasten me with a safety pin? Yes, to fasten you to the twenty thousand francs. Then, whether it's here or on the drive from here to your place, or at your place, you will feel the hand that pulls at your pocket, and you will see it's mine. Oh, so you're suspecting me, are you? A safety pin. And that was the moment when Moncharmin opened the door on the passage and shouted, A safety pin. Somebody give me a safety pin. And we also know how, at the same moment, Remy, who had no safety pin, was received by Moncharmin, while a boy procured the pin so eagerly longed for. And what happened was this. Moncharmin first locked the door again. Then he knelt down behind Richard's back. I hope, he said, that the notes are still there. So do I, said Richard. The real ones, asked Moncharmin, resolved not to be had this time. Look for yourself, said Richard. I refuse to touch them. Moncharmin took the envelope from Richard's pocket and drew out the banknotes with a trembling hand, for, this time, in order frequently to make sure of the presence of the notes, he had not sealed the envelope, nor even fastened it. He felt assured on finding that they were all there and quite genuine. He put them back in the tail pocket and pinned them with great care. Then he sat down behind Richard's coat tails and kept his eyes fixed on them, while Richard, sitting at his writing table, did not stir. A little patience, Richard, said Moncharmin. We have only a few minutes to wait. The clock will soon strike twelve. Last time, we left at the last stroke of twelve. Oh, I shall have all the patience necessary. The time passed, slowly, heavy, mysterious, stifling. Richard tried to laugh, 
I shall end by believing in the omnipotence of the ghost, he said. Just now, don't you find something uncomfortable, disquieting, alarming in the atmosphere of the room? You're quite right, said Monshamin, who was really impressed. The ghost, continued Richard, in a low voice, as though fearing lest he should be overheard by invisible ears. The ghost. Suppose all the same, it were a ghost who puts the magic envelopes on the table, who talks in box five, who killed Joseph Bouquet, who unhooked the chandelier, and who robs us. For, after all, after all, there is no one here except you or me, and, if the notes disappear, and neither you nor I have anything to do with it, well, we shall have to believe in the ghost, in the ghost. At that moment, the clock on the mantelpiece gave its warning click, and the first stroke of twelve struck. The two managers shuddered. The perspiration streamed from their foreheads. The twelfth stroke sounded strangely in their ears. When the clock stopped, they gave a sigh and rose from their chairs. I think we can go now, said Monshamin. I think so, Richard agreed. Before we go, do you mind if I look in your pocket? But of course, Monshamin, you must. Well, he asked, as Monshamin was feeling at the pocket. Well, I can feel the pin. Of course, as you said, we can't be robbed without noticing it. But Monshamin, whose hands were still fumbling, bellowed. I can feel the pin, but I can't feel the notes. Come, no joking, Monshamin. This isn't the time for it. Well, feel for yourself. Richard tore off his coat. The two managers turned the pocket inside out. The pocket was empty. And the curious thing was that the pin remained stuck in the same place. Richard and Monshamin turned pale. There was no longer any doubt about the witchcraft. The ghost, muttered Monshamin, but Richard suddenly sprang upon his partner. No one but you has touched my pocket. Give me back my twenty thousand francs. Give me back my twenty thousand francs. On my soul, sighed Monshamin, who was ready to swoon. On my soul, I swear that I haven't got it. Then somebody knocked at the door. Monshamin opened it automatically, seemed hardly to recognize Mercia, his business manager, exchanging a few words with him, without knowing what he was saying.
and, with an unconscious movement, put the safety pin, for which he had no further use, into the hands of his bewildered subordinate.